0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over, it's time to live.
1: Now we know up to 95% of your serotonin is in your gut. A happy gut is literally the key to mental happiness, and Ayurveda's been saying this for 5,000 years, and now finally we're realizing how important this is. And then I realized at that moment that my whole life I had been living for my parents' approval. Get a good grade, get this, get that. And then at that moment, hearing that I'm a total disgrace and failure to their life and they want nothing to do with me, that's when I became free. So, it's this dance between the two, and it really took fulfilling what it is that I wanted to do and also figuring out ways to make a business out of it that I was able to achieve the balance of work and play. play, 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 play.
0: What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Sahara Rose. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Sahara Rose. So I wanted to have Sahara on the show because I wanted to learn exactly what Ayurveda is and how I can use it in my personal and my business life. I hear people talk about Ayurveda all the time. I listen to Deepak Chopra, but I never really understood it. So, I'm always looking for the edge, and I'm always looking for a way that I can take my business and personal life to the next level, which is exactly why I created my 2019 Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind. I want to remind you that the key to get from where you are now to where you want to be is a mastermind, but it has to be the right mastermind. You know, look, I see all these pop-up masterminds everywhere. Many of them are expensive and a giant waste of money if you don't find the one that has the right fit for you. And frankly, mine included. So who's mine for? Mine is for a six and seven figure entrepreneur that spends more time working than they do playing and know that they need to level up their tribe to get to the next level. And frankly, it's for people that are tired of the same old boring mastermind and they want to do something new and different that fits where they are in their life now. So the way I design this is plugging my mastermind into your year puts you immediately into an amazing tribe of people and into insanely exciting locations around the world. So if you think this might be for you, go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind and fill out the application. From my perspective, most of the other masterminds are largely ineffective because you're just sitting in a boring conference room with prepackaged speakers for three days. And for me, I've always had my biggest personal and business breakthroughs when I'm having unique experiences around the world with a cool tribe of people that levels my game up, full stop. But it's an art to pull together 25 entrepreneurs and to facilitate massive growth over the course of 12 months in locations around the world. This is a very specific skill set that you have to have to do this, and I know exactly how to do it. So I'm doing interviews for the 2019 spots that are still available, and what I take the most seriously is finding the right 25 people. I need the best mix of personalities, ambitions, and skill sets in diverse businesses. I'm going to continue to interview until I find the right people, I want you to get your application in today. So if you are an entrepreneur that's in the six-figure range or the low seven-figure range and you're ready to go to the next level and up-level your tribe, your business, and add some play into your life, then go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind. Again, workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash forward/mastermind. I want to see your application and jump on a phone call with you and hear about your goals and see if you're a perfect fit to come with us to Boston, St Petersburg, Russia, and Italy. Imagine how cool it would be to mastermind your goals in Russia during the white night celebration, or over a glass of champagne in the villa in Tuscany. Just go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash masterminds. All right, let's get into this episode with Sahara Rose and talk about Ayurveda. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: You know what? I am super pumped for this episode because... I heard you speak live at one of our Mastermind events. And as they say, I laughed, I cried tears of joy, and I was super inspired by your message. So I am so glad that you're here.
1: Oh, I'm I'm so looking. I've been looking forward to it since the day you invited me at that talk. So thank you for having me.
0: Uh, It's gonna be great. Okay, so what I wanna cover is, I wanna cover the kind of work that you do, how you like to play, And then we're going to wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Perfect. So I think a good starting off point would be to talk about where you grew up. You weren't raised by you know some yogi in the Himalayas. Could you tell us where you grew up and maybe a story about something your parents did with you as a kid, which sort of typifies what your experiences were like, say from ages 10 to 15.
1: Mm, Okay. Well, I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and my dad was the smartest student in Iran. Iran, the Middle East, and he actually got a full ride scholarship to MIT, and he got three PhDs from there. So he was a literal genius. And so growing up, he was all about like studying and work hard and get the best grades, and you know, such like he was sent me to Japanese math school, and it was all about that for him because he has his um, PhDs in laser physics, nuclear engineering, finance, and then got his MBA on the side. And now he has a computer software company and, and works in business as well. So very academic background. But then my mom, she was actually a refugee that left Iran during the Iranian revolution. She actually crossed the border by foot to Turkey, backpacked her way through Turkey, took public transportation up to Bulgaria, got asylum in Spain, and then eventually got refugee status in New York. Didn't know any English and just sort of figured it out and then didn't get to go to college until later on when she met my dad in the US and got married and she was pregnant with me. So total opposite. She She's all about you following your heart and doing what makes you happy. And education is not as important. It matters more like family and, and of course, survivalhood because I was a really big thing in her life. So two total opposite um, parents. And... I used to see, for example, my dad would work really, really hard and zero play, and I would always see him stressed out, paying bills, doing, looking at all these like financial reports that would come back, and just always really angry. So I saw, okay, money is really stressful and makes you really um, overburdened, and you're not able to have fun. And then I would see my mom, who's sort of always just like playing with us and going around, um, but then she didn't have the money. And every time she needed money or something, she had to ask my dad. And one specific story was when I was about five years old. So my dad was always working. We never really saw him. Um, But one of the few times he decided to take my brother and I out to ice cream. And I would always get vanilla with rainbow sprinkles. And my brother would always get chocolate. And I didn't like chocolate. He didn't like vanilla. That's just what we were like. So my dad took us out to ice cream. And... I said, I want the vanilla. He wants the chocolate. And he's like, well, in his Persian accent, he's like, well, it's actually 60 cents more if you get two smalls. So instead, why don't you get one medium, same two scoops, but you choose one flavor? And I'm like, well, I want the (laughs) vanilla with sprinkles and he wants the chocolate. He's like, well, it's 60 cents less. So you have to decide on a flavor or no ice cream. So to my brother, I'm like, I guess we're getting the vanilla. He's like, no, we're getting the chocolate. And we're just arguing back and forth. And then my dad gets his coffee ice cream. He's like, well, I guess no ice cream for you. And we left. Didn't get ice cream. So I learned right then. Oh my God. Yeah, I learned right
0: then. the soup Nazi.
1: Right. So I learned right then. Well, I didn't get my flavor of ice cream because of this thing called money. I don't really get what it is. But I realized the person that has it has the power. So I definitely want that in my life, but I also don't want to be burdened by it. I didn't have an example of the, the work and the play. It was one or the other. So it was this dance in my life of, you know, I was a really good student. I went to BU. I got amazing grades. I got into George Washington University. I wanted to study international human rights law, but then also... Times that I just wanted to join the Peace Corps and not even be part of society. And I moved to India after I graduated and I lived in Bali and I lived with like orphans and in prisons and with nuns and monks and the opposite. So it was this dance between the two and it really took fulfilling what it is that I wanted to do and also figuring out ways to make a business out of it that I was able to achieve the balance of work and play.
0: You know, first of all, let me say this. Your Iranian imitation is spot on. You had a lot of practice that I can actually sit here and get some popcorn and just listen to you do that like as a one, one woman show. Try that living with two
1: of them. You'll get really good.
0: <laughs> that was amazing. My next question that I have to ask you is, have you seen a Sunset?
1: Oh, yeah, of course.
0: And when you watch when you watch it, what do you think?
1: Yeah, we don't like that show because it doesn't make <laughs> it doesn't make Persians look good. It's like all the drama, and I don't know. They couldn't have picked some better looking people. Like, hi, I'm available, guys. If anyone's listening, no, I'm kidding. But um, that But I mean, so it's great that, to see Persians on TV, but in the worst way possible.
0: <laughs> what did you think you were going to be uh, in high school?
1: An international human rights lawyer. That's always what I wanted to be. I wanted to to be on the front line helping people. That's one thing from the time I was a kid. I remember it was like fifth grade. They're like, dress up as your hero. And I came in a full-on robe and a turban. I'm like, I'm Gandhi. And I just always was so drawn to helping people. And and especially in, in India specifically, and I want to join Mother Teresa's nun. And actually, though both of my parents are are. Um, born and raised in Iran, I actually recently did an ancestry test and i 'm forty percent Indian, so it was literally my ancestry calling out to me, saying, "You need to go back to India and you need to learn about these roots and, I, and to, yeah, and to me, the only way I thought to help people was to join a NGO or to do law i didn 't know that there were other ways
0: okay, so around twelve years old, you started volunteering locally. And then around 15, you started volunteering overseas with uh, things like nonprofits. Where do you think that drive came from? Nurture or nature or nurture?
1: I think nature. I had never seen anyone do this stuff. To be honest, I had never even seen examples of women working around me. All the women around me were were housewives. Um, And if I just continued to fulfill what what was expected of me. I would have gotten married and had kids and you know, just lived a normal life. So definitely it was something that was embedded in my DNA, a soul mission that I was really born here with.
0: Okay. We're going to move forward a little bit to Costa Rica. What do you think the key lessons learned that you got from living in a prison in Costa Rica?
1: So I was helping the children whose moms were incarcerated. So- These are kids who basically had to grow up outside of a prison in this like kind of one big yard. And it was sort of like an orphanage, but you knew your mom was there. You just couldn't really see see her. You could visit her once a week. So it was this interesting setting that you didn't really talk about what was going on, but everyone sort of knew. And it was just the older kids taking care of the younger kids. And in a way, it was really beautiful because they created their own family. But it was also... Heartbreaking because some of these women are are gonna be in, in jail for the rest of their lives. And what's gonna happen when this kid turns 14, which is when they when they're supposed to exit, where are they going to go next? And and this isn't just the case in Costa Rica, this is the case all around the world. And yeah, it just really opened my eyes that this has to be something that that there needs to be laws in place. There needs to be more support from a legal perspective because this whole issue is not going to be solved just from like people coming in to volunteer for a few months and leaving. And it also showed me that I did continue to volunteer, but. Sometimes we want to be the one who's there and almost like interacting with the kid and saving the kid. But sometimes, and this is more in the other places I would volunteer at, for example, in Peru at this orphanage, sometimes when people volunteer somewhere for a short amount of time and leave, it can even cause more harm because these kids are so used to being left. And then when they keep seeing volunteers coming in and out, in and out, it makes them not trust people and not open their hearts. So I saw really the other side of the NGO and volunteering space and what is the real way that we could make change
0: so let's fast forward to college can you walk me through why you decided initially to focus on international relations starting with george george washington university and then ultimately graduating from boston university what was it about that field that excited you the most
1: yeah, I mean, I've always loved to learn about other cultures, of course. And then to be able to take action and do something that could really help. Like I was really passionate about um, about children's rights. So for example, child trafficking, child sex trade, child labor, child soldiers. For me, that's just the worst, the worst possible thing that could ever happen to such an innocent being. And that's really what I wanted to get involved in. So I, I went to school there and I started to volunteer in different NGOs. Um, Intern in different NGOs. And, you know, as amazing as the causes were, I realized again in these NGO settings, it was a lot of raising money for the fundraiser. And then you have, you spend all the money on the fundraiser and then you raise money for the next fundraiser. And again, I was really wanting to be on the ground knowing that I was helping people. And then while I was volunteering, teaching health and sanitation in the slums of Delhi, that's when my own health started to plummet. And that's when I discovered Ayurveda. So I didn't kind of make a decision because of my own health problems. I had to just heal myself. And then in this process of learning how to heal myself, I became so passionate about that, that I started to blog about it. And then eventually wrote books about it and created my whole career on that. So it it took me somewhere else. I'm still helping people just in a way that I hadn't I hadn't at first anticipated. All
0: right. So let's go back to Delhi that you were just talking about. You spent initially a year in India. How different did it feel for you from the Middle Eastern culture that you were raised around? In other words, when you got to India... Did you just slide into it and it was like, you know, this is amazing. I just love it here. Or was it just the culture shock that I hear everybody tell me about when they go to India?
1: No, I loved it. I, I knew I would love it. My whole life I've wanted to go. So the moment that I had the chance to go, I'm like, I'm there. And for me, like looking, when I'm driving in India, looking out of the window, it's like watching the best movie ever. I just genuinely love the country so much. I love the I love the chaos of it. I love everything I see. I love that they're the most beautiful palaces. And there's also kids dancing in the street. And there's so much joy. And I think whatever you focus on in life will will show up for you. So you could focus on all of the sad and horrific things that happen in India, which is very true. But for me, just the overall essence of India is so real and sacred and just shows the duality of society that we all have light and shadow inside all of us. And India just really exemplifies it well.
0: Okay, I want to talk to you a little bit about Bali. When you were in Bali, looking back now, what were the key lessons that you learned living there?
1: Yeah, so living in Bali was sort of the place that made me rethink everything that I learned growing up, all the conditioning. And I had to basically uneducate, unlearn. For example, um, one small thing was I remember you know growing up, you were told or my friends cousins especially the ones from Iran would say if you like a guy ignore him. You have to play hard to get. Don't let him know that you like him. In fact, ignore him the most of everyone there. And then I realized, you know, this, from this conditioning I'm like, well, think about the type of men I would attract if all I'm doing is ignoring the one the person that I'm the most interested in, well, I'm going to end up with someone who sees me as almost this like thing to conquer, to make make this girl like me. And that may not be the best person for me. So all these conditionings, like I have to work really hard, that life is hard, life is... You're you're not supposed to like your job. You're supposed to just do it to make money. So all of that was being re-questioned because I was living in this community in, in Ubud, Bali, where a lot of digital nomads a lot of people building online businesses and just traveling no real home base and you know going to yoga class and ecstatic dance and l- playing in the jungle and, and totally like centering their lives around play and work was just that thing that they do to fund themselves so i was like oh my god no they have the solution i'm actually i'm actually totally twisted i'm going to live here from now on and i'm just going to live this life of like pleasure fun enjoy and just you know do something online to make enough money for me to survive in bali which doesn't take that much and then after a few months of doing that i realized there was a shadow side to that too and a lot of the people there were escaping something whether it was a difficult divorce or um, a job that didn't work out, etc. So, and not again, not everyone. There are a lot of beautiful, amazing, like really right on people in Bali. But there were also the people who were just living their lives with no real purpose. And I I saw that that doesn't bring happiness either.
0: I love this. That's what the theme of this show is, right? It's work hard, play hard. You know, sometimes you find the people like you just described in Bali that are just all about, you know, let's just let's just go to Goa, you know, let's leave here and go from here to Goa, and let's just party and smoke some pot and it's going to be amazing. We're going to have a great life. And then, you know, you realize that you're just completely out of balance and then we have all the people that are around us where it's all work, work, work and they never even take a trip to a place like Bali. So you're right. What is it about Bali that you think attracted, attracts, continues to attract uh, the digital nomad lifestyle?
1: Yeah, so they say Bali is like a womb. Like energetically it is so comforting and feminine and nurturing and it's so lush and you can live a very comfortable life for not that much money. You could, you know, like have a mansion with a staff for $200,000 a year. And this is I'm talking like that's the most expensive. It's it's insane. But at the same time, um, I think that a lot of them go because, again, they can take advantage. A lot of people are taking advantage of the island and how cheap it is. And a lot of the Balinese people are being rooted out of their own cities because of these people who are saying, okay, yeah, what's $200,000 for me? So they buy a second, third, fourth home and they end up vacant. So you see, and there is kind of now this this pushback from the Balinese government who's seeing all, like soon, like all of Australia is just going to live in Bali. So they are trying to... Like,
0: set... everybody, I kn- everybody I know from Australia is living in Bali. You're right. Everyone,
1: yeah. I mean, if you go to South Bali, like Seminyak by the beach area, it's, it's literally just Australia. And it's sad because it's losing a lot of the Balinese essence. So I was in Ubud, which is in the center of Bali, which is more of a spiritual Mecca. And then I lived up in, by the waterfalls with a Balinese family that I found on Airbnb. And that was amazing because I was the only person who was not Balinese in the village and I was really learning their ways. But at the same time, like there wasn't really internet there and it's a totally different life. So I think that Bali is a really great place to go to like mega pull to your spiritual journey. It will teach you a lot of lessons and show things about yourself, but also hold you in this really nurturing environment. A lot of like, for example, India is a way more masculine energy. It's like, it is brutal, but beautiful. Whereas Bali is like, ah oh, lush, feminine. But when you're supposed to leave Bali, Bali will let you know. And I see a lot of people having horrible things happen to them. Like they get dengue, Get hit by motorcycles, etc. And that's Bali being like, "Okay, it's time for you to leave. Like, go, go figure out your life now. Your work here is done."
0: Wow, God, that's so interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. I just got chills when you said that. And somebody, somebody once said to me, "When you get chills, it's God's way of remaining anonymous." So uh, I like that. Okay, cool. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, your parents and you during that time in your life. Obviously. You're a bit of a free spirit. You're in Bali. Your dad's got you know 19 summa cum laude from uh, MIT. What was it like? Like, what was that conversation like? Were they like, you know, this is great, just go off and have fun, or they're like, "Go, go get a freaking job, lady?
1: Oh my god, no! It was it was the hardest, honestly, period of my life because here I am in Bali trying to like I was writing my book, and that's really why I was there to focus on writing the book, and then also all of the reprogramming was happening and my parents had a lot of fear of course because they come from immigrant backgrounds but for them it didn't make sense to them if you if you have a comfortable normal life why would you leave and put yourself in in danger and they felt like you know they're not like spiritual yogis in any way so when I would tell them about like oh I did this ecstatic dance I met this shaman they literally thought I was mentally insane and really what the fear came from was Fear that I would not be able to support myself later on in life and would, you know, end up becoming one of these people who's just vagabonding forever with no real purpose. And they had risked so much to come to this country and they didn't, it didn't make sense for them why I'm here and then I would want to go somewhere else. But it's like Maslow's hierarchy. And when, you know, at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy is survival. When your survival's met, you have your needs, you, just the things that you need, and then after that, it's your wants, the things that you know you you could have, and then it's your more indulgent desires. Maybe you get you know nice fancy stuff, and then it's self-actualization, and it's what is my real purpose here? And because for them th- on the Maslow's chart, they were really focused for a lot of their lives on survival. Of course, that it didn't make sense for them. Why I would just be trying to get self-actualization. But it's no one's fault. It's just different different upbringings and different time periods of history, etc. So it was really hard. There was a lot of fighting going on. There was a lot of me feeling guilty about being there, but at the same time, knowing that I shouldn't feel guilty about living my own life, me not knowing whether I'm supposed to live my truth or this is something only for hippies. Just a lot of confusion because I hadn't really seen an example of someone doing the work hard, play hard. Again, it was seeing these two extremes and I was kind of torn in between. And even though I was in Bali, in paradise, my heart was just always like torn open in this Constant, constant fighting and debating that was going on, and eventually, I I, th- I thought I was going to just live in Bali, but eventually, I came back because the fighting was just so bad. And then when I came back, I mean, it didn't it didn't get any better but i had to eventually reach this point that my parents were so upset with me they wanted literally nothing to do with me they said you're you're dead to our eyes you're a failure you're like this is what persian people say to their kids but they're like you're the scum of the earth like really bad things that would be considered verbal abuse and then I realized at that moment that my whole life I had been living for my parents approval, get a good grade, get this, get that. And then at that moment hearing that I'm a total disgrace and failure to their life and they want nothing to do with me, that's when I became free. And that's when I finally was able to cut those cords and realize I'm not I'm not living to please anyone else even the people that gave me life. I'm I have to live this life for myself. So that set me free on my own path and to become unap- unapologetic about it. And then I left back to India and this time with no apologies. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And if you want me to be in your life, you have to accept that. And I actually had to get to a point of being okay with not having any family in my life anymore. Because it was either my, my truth or forever resenting my family for not following it. And I knew I wouldn't really be able to be a good daughter if I didn't follow what it is I knew I had to do. And now, flash forward... Five years, um, they're really proud of what I do. And, you know, the other day they met Deepak Chopra, and Deepak Chopra is like, You should be so proud of your daughter. And they're like, Yeah, we are. So, for anyone who's maybe in the scenario of trying to please your parents and, and not, or not, or spouse or anyone, you do you because when you do you and you are so strong and you are so affirmed in yourself and you will succeed, then those same people who are questioning your path are going to be the ones like, Oh, look at my daughter.
0: You know, your, your parents were like uh, telling Deepak, uh, yeah, you know, we've always been so supportive <laughs> exactly. of what she's doing. We guided her through the lushness of Bali. <laughs>
1: yes. But in a way, their 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 harshness is what made me strong. So I have to be grateful for it.
0: Oh yeah. I mean the path is there for a reason. And frankly, who knows if you weren't there to teach them things that they needed to learn, right? So I mean, you know, I've learned I've learned to stop second guessing everything because everything happens precisely the way it's supposed to. So let's fast forward a bit. And I'd like to talk about the story of your literary agent asking you if you want to write The Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. Can you tell me how that happened?
1: Yeah. Wow. You've really done your research. I'm like, is this stuff all on my bio? Where is he getting all this?
0: I find find it all.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. It was amazing. So So I had this idea, I'm going to write this book about Ayurveda. Ayurveda, for people who don't know, and I keep saying it's the world's oldest health system, origin, ancient India, sister science of yoga, something that a lot of people don't talk about. Now it's getting a lot more popular. So I decided that I was going to write this book. I had never met an author. I didn't even know what a literary agent was. I, I thought you just write a book and then you send it out to some people and then someone just publishes it. And that obviously wasn't the case. So... I've, I wrote the book, I got it edited, graphic design, like I had a completed book, but I sent it to obviously so many literary agents and they wanted nothing to do with me, especially if you're a first time author. It's really hard to get a book deal as, you know, Barnes and Noble shuts down and the book space is kind of slowing. So um, I eventually met a friend and she introduced me to her literary agent who was interested in representing my book. And for those of you who want a book and you don't know how the book process works, you find a literary agent and that's the person who's going to represent you and your book proposal. And you send that book proposal to a number of editors at different publishing houses. And then those editors, if they're interested, will bid on your proposal. And then you can decide whether it's based on the highest bid or the publisher that you think is the best fit who you want to go with. Now, that being said, it is again, very rare for an editor to even bid because they're upfronting you money in an industry that is not profitable. So I got, again, rejected by so many different publishers. And all of the fears that I had in my head of, who am I? I'm too young. I'm not ready for this. No one knows what Ayurveda is, etc. were all echoed back to me in the voices of other people. And that's what the universe does. It will, it will test your fears.
0: I can only imagine what it must have felt like for you to be in that place. This sounds like it was one of, you know, we all have these inflection points that happen in our lives, you know, where once this thing happens, then we just make a turn in a different direction. It sounds like that's what this was for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, the, I had risked everything. I mean, like literally, like no family, no friends, nothing. I it was just me on my own trying to make this book happen. Like that's how all in I was. So there was no fail. There was no possibility of failure in my mind. I knew this book was going to be on the shelves of Barnes and Nobles. I was just trying to figure out how that was going to happen. So for me, I when they would say no, I'm like, okay, it's going to be someone else. So again, like thirty editors said no. The literary agents, like, I'm not really sure. This topic's not really hot right now maybe in a few years. And then she gets a call from um, Penguin Random House, which is the world's largest publisher. And they're looking for someone to write the official Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda, which is part of the Idiot's Guide series, like Idiot's Guide to Flowers, Idiot's Guide to Mowing Your Lawn, etc. So again, this is a very big series. It's going to be in all the major bookstores. And they wanted one about Ayurveda. And they had had an, an author who was four months into the six months they give you. And it was just too much work for her because it's a very, very specific style of writing in a specific format. Um, And it was too much work for her and she quit and she didn't turn anything in. So they were basically looking for someone to front to cover, finish a textbook, a 400-page textbook in two months, which is a really short amount of time for any sort of book, let alone this. The literary agent was like, oh, well, I know this girl who's interested in Ayurveda. They were like, oh, I'm not really sure, but... Tell her to send us a table of contents that she would write. This is the table of contents that that author had turned in. If she has any edits, um, we'd love to see. And she has by the end of next week. So the literary agent sends it to me and I just knew this is my chance. And I sent in an entirely new table of contents did not use anything from that. And I'm talking like a 16-page table of contents. It's down to the paragraph of everything that this book would entail. And I sent it back to them at the end of that same day. So they were like, okay, well, if she were to write the first chapter, we'd love to see her writing style again, end of next week. I bought every Idiot's Guide book you can imagine just to kind of see how their writing styles are. And I like I call it channeling, but it's like you just get on that laptop and it's almost like my mind is not even there. It just words are coming through me. And I wrote that again. It was a 16-page first chapter and I turned it in at the end of that same day. And two days later, I was hired to create the Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. I... Set my whole schedule around that. I, you know, I was working with some one on one clients at the time. I had an online program, but I really made this my priority and I got it done and I turned it in. And then I really didn't know how the book would do. About two days before the book was going to be printed, I was at a conference and um, Deepak Chopra happened to be there. I had no idea. I don't know if you want to ask me about that later. But eventually, I got Deepak Chopra on board to write the foreword and now it's the best-selling Ayurveda book globally. The best-selling Idiot's Guide book ever has sold more than 50,000 copies and it came out last year. So... All of that preparation work of writing my own book that was never published. And all of these questions that I had, all the healing that I had to do was just preparing me for this moment. And because you know, luck is pre- preparation meets opportunity, that's exactly what happened.
0: What's amazing is that it came down to the idiot's guide, right? I mean, it, you would not have thought that this would have been the thing that put you on the map just a few years before that, Right.
1: No, I mean for me I was trying to make my own book happen which was like which is my book that's coming out in a few weeks which is a more modern approach to ayurveda. I didn't even know there were idiot's guides to ayurveda. I wasn't the idiot's guide series wasn't even on my mind and I thought that if they were to hire someone like that it would have been like some like old man. But yeah, it was it was sort of like a dissertation of ayurveda and I think that why it kind of set me apart was it showed that I actually know my stuff. I'm not some random girl who's like, oh, Ayurveda is cool. And I don't really know anything about it. It really showed the extent of knowledge that I had. And now from there, I'm able to say, well, this is my version of it. And, and now I, I bring Ayurveda into business, which is what the, um, at Chris's Mastermind I was speaking about in relationships and seeing it just as an archetype to look at all different aspects of life
0: all right so let's we've been dancing around a little bit about uh Ayurveda for those that have no idea what it is um, and we'll just go high level here maybe we can simplify and try and demystify Ayurveda a little bit. What is Ayurveda
1: yeah so Ayurveda means the knowledge of life it is an integrative health system as well as a psychological and philosophical system. So yoga is the practice of um, becoming one with the universe. It's a spiritual practice. Most of us think yoga is like an exercise or Physical, physical asana practice, but it's actually a spiritual practice. And Ayurveda was the predecessor. And it said, well, for you to become enlightened, you can't have a backache and digestive issues and all of these physical and mental problems that are holding you back. You need to first heal your mind and body so you can truly practice yoga and truly you know, expand and, and be your highest self. So from nutrition to self-care to meditation practices, all of these are part of Ayurveda. And what makes it so magical to me is that it's specified for your unique mind-body type, which is called a dosha. A dosha means your energy type. So there are three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha. Vata's air, pitta's fire, and kapha's earth. We're all a combination of all three, but in varying amounts. So... People who are airy are going to have air-like characteristics in their mind and body. Pit, people who are pitta, fiery, will have fire-like characteristics. People who are kapha will have earth-like characteristics. And we can dive into more of what that means. But that's a general synopsis of what Ayurveda is. It's integrative mind-body wellness system.
0: So maybe you can give some examples of some people in each category. So let's... Um, what am I? Am I avada, pitta, or kapha?
1: So you are a pitta. So pittas are fiery people. For example, what to you is a fiery person? How would you describe one? Gary V. Gary Vee, totally. Yes. So what are the qualities of Gary V. that make him fiery?
0: He wants to eat your face off.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? like... Like go getter, like he he's he's ruthless.
0: (laughs) Like he's like I feel like you know just get out of his way because it's a tornado that's going to come into the room. And the moment he leaves the room, you can literally feel the drop in energy.
1: Right. Yes. Exactly. The energy. So again, like when you feel fiery, you feel you feel like amped up. Right. It's like if you're about to. Play a basketball game or something. So fire is is drive. It's ambitious. It's hardworking. It's goal oriented. It's it's you know really going towards something. A fiery person is not going to meander through life. They're like, okay, what is the target, and I'm going to get to that target. For example, if they're going on a walk, they're not aimlessly walking around. They may try to, but by nature, they want to kind of know where they're going, and they're probably fast walkers. So with that they naturally tend to be entrepreneurs they tend to be in leadership positions managerial CEOs etc they are not good at being bossed around by other people but they're really good at delegating they're good at kind of leading a team seeing what needs to be done and then and then telling them what to do so it's not that they they can be excess fire which means when there's too much heat in the system you feel like a volcano like you're going to erupt and that can feel like impatience if someone's moving a little bit too slowly or not picking up something fast enough you're like oh my god why don't you get it so could feel like that it could feel just irritation could feel like Anger, right? Like road rage, for example, is a good example of excess pitta, excess fire that's coming out. So there's two sides to every coin. Um, A pitta person has the right characteristics to really lead a team, but if they don't keep that fire in check and they don't balance it out with the other two doshas, the more airiness and the more earthiness, then they can burn themselves out. And in the body, that can also feel like heartburn, inflammation, acidity, acne, oily skin just feeling like like rashes and irritations on the skin, irritations within the body, hypersensitivity. These are all signs that there's too much heat in the system. So again, the mind and the body are related. So what's showing up for you physically is going to show up for you mentally and vice versa.
0: Okay, so what are you?
1: So, my, so I'm close to tridoshic, which means close to all three, but the order that I was born with is actually pitta first, just like you, then vata, then kapha.
0: And what about your boyfriend? He's,
1: he's Pitta for sure. He's a, a manager in the music um, industry. So he's really, really on it. But he also has the Vata side because he also produces music and, and the Vata is more creative. The Kapha is more um, nurturing, caring, motherly. That's that type of energy.
0: Who's a celebrity that everybody would know just for the sake of an example that falls into a Kapha dosha?
1: Yeah. So Kapha is Oprah. Oprah is a great example. So earthy people, they talk mm, a little bit more slow like this and they're really grounded and they tend to just have a really soothing energy. But if you're really pitta, you're getting really annoyed right now with how slow I'm talking. So, (laughs) So they are just very they're they're calm they're supportive they're loving if you think about oprah oprah why do we all love her it's not just for what she said but how she listened And that was her superpower. She was able to sit and hold space and make anyone on her chair feel comfortable and feel heard. So they're empaths. But at the same time, we know that Oprah's lifelong lesson that she speaks about is setting boundaries and being able to say no. She always felt like she had to say yes to everyone, every opportunity that came to her door because she wanted to please people around her. And that left her feeling depleted and then she would turn to emotional eating. So again, the yo-yo dieting, the yo-yo weight is a sign of the kapha because they end up so depleted and giving and taking care of others. They need to get that energy back in somehow and food is just a really easy way. So feeling heavy, gaining weight, feeling sluggish, tired, stuck stuck in a a stump, right? That's very kapha when there's excess kapha.
0: How about the same example for Avada?
1: Yeah. So, well, let me... tell you one more from Kafka that I think is a good one is Robin Williams. So Robin Williams is kind, loving, funny, made the world laugh, but we did not know that he was suffering from depression. So Kaphas, though they are the most loving, they're the most likely to suffer from depression because they're not taking care of themselves. And now for Vatas, Steve Jobs is a really good example. So... VATAs are really creative, they're eccentric, they they move fast, they see the world in ways that people don't. They're really strong visionaries. Because if you think about the air, the air is moving, the air is fast, sporadic, it's 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 intangible, right? So they're really good ideas people, but not so good at the execution. If you look at Steve Jobs, he had Steve Wozniak, and he's the one that actually executed the ideas. They need someone like that. Mm. Um, and then also if you've watched the documentaries, we also know Steve Jobs wasn't the most stable person. He He was sometimes there for his kids, sometimes not. So he had the shadow side of it too, that he was an anxious person, that he was an insomniac, that he had trouble grounding and resting. And um, vatas tend to gravitate towards excess raw foods. And we know that Steve Jobs was a raw vegan. He named it apple after the apple. So vatas can get really heady and out of touch with their bodies.
0: Mm, so interesting. You've mentioned a couple of times about shadow and I'm assuming that there's a, a light and a dark inside all of us. Can you sort of elaborate a little bit by what you mean about the shadow?
1: Yeah, so the shadow is the other side of us that we may ignore or suppress, but is equally just a part of our personalities and everyone has a shadow side. So for example, for the vata, it could be the, maybe you're, flaky. You can be honest with yourself. You're not a very reliable person. And you may not see it that way. You may just see, well, I don't know. I'm just interested in a lot of things and things are moving. And I just go with the flow. But for other people, that could be seen as flaky. Or for the pitta, maybe you're really passionate and you just see it as passion, but other people see it as intimidating or, or again, angry. And for the kapha, you may see it as you're just chill, but it could also be that you're lazy and procrastinating.
0: Okay. So within each of us, we have this sort of like other side that we need to acknowledge. Is there anything special that we need to do with that shadow side? In other words, I think maybe a better way to put it is I think people are embarrassed of that shadow side. You know, I'm, I'm not reliable, I'm flaky, and they don't want to acknowledge that. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So the first thing we have to do is just acknowledge that it's there. You can't heal something unless you acknowledge it. If you're in denial, you're never going to be able to really go through it. So you have to go through it to transmute it. So first acknowledge that, yes, I, I can see that about myself. And there are times that I could do that and just becoming hyper aware of it. And through that awareness, then when you get into those states without you even having to do a 12-step program or anything, when you can become aware that you are in it, you know, okay, this is right now when I'm in this point, this is why mindfulness is so important. When you're in that moment of you're feeling the heat rising and you're about to get angry, you're like, huh, this this is the anger. And I think a really good thing is to disassociate yourself from the emotion like in a lot of ancient practices they call it the anger. it's not your anger, it's the anger. it's a collective mm-hmm. anger that is experienced. So if you say, oh this is the anger that's emerging, then you're able to separate yourself and see I am not my anger this is just an emotion that is wanting to come through as a response to outside stimulus And some some say some schools of thought say, go through the anger in a healthy way, like punch a pillow, etc. But how I see it is, if you really, really go deeper into it, you realize that there's truly nothing to be angry about because this life is literally just here for you to enjoy yourself. And when you can really go through that, then all of your your emotions, your lower vibration emotions, you realize it's just so not worth your time. And though the emotion can come up, when you acknowledge it, you're like, oh, that that's so sweet. I feel angry about this. Oh, that's, that's so so cute of me, you know, and you can see it like that the same way as you would when a kid gets angry and you have that self-love and that self-compassion for yourself, then you get less associated with it.
0: You know, I've never heard other than Tony Robbins put a the in front of something. He recently, and this is interesting, he went to um, uh, this place called One World Academy, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, Lewis Howes went there too, kind of a spiritual retreat. And one of the things that he learned there was to refer to your mind as the minds because the mind is 2 million years old and it's designed to keep you safe and it's not designed to make you happy. It's designed to look for what's wrong. So add the word the in front of it. And so when you're like, you know, my mind is doing this, my, my brain is doing that, just put, it's not, it's, it's not your mind, it's the mind's. And I never heard anybody mm. else do that. And I love the way you just put that with anger. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and speak to myself in third person these days now, the anger and the mind. I like that.
1: Because you, you are the soul.
0: Because we are the soul. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I want to talk about your book. So you've got a new book and it's called Eat, Feel Fresh. Um, I have a couple of questions on that. Tell me what this book is about overall and how is it different from the previous book that you wrote?
1: Yeah. So this is my modern approach of looking at Ayurveda. From studying it, I realized there were a lot of things that didn't quite make sense for today's time. So for example, in Ayurveda, they say, don't eat mushrooms. And I really looked into, well, why would you not eat mushrooms? There's a lot of health benefits to mushrooms. And I learned that that actually came in from the British rule in the 19th century because there were a lot of psychedelic mushrooms growing in India. And they didn't want people to ingest the psychedelic mushrooms because who knows, they'd open their minds and see how messed up all of this was. So they would just tell everyone, mushrooms are poisonous, don't eat them. And that just became kind of an old wives' tale and then sort of got thrown into Ayurveda because it was such an orally past tradition. But if you look at India, lots of places in India, especially North India, they eat mushrooms. So... I just looked into it from this almost like outside perspective just to research, analyze it like an anthropologist would and said, okay, does this make sense? Where does it come from and why? Or you can't eat food that was cooked more than three hours ago in Ayurveda. Well, why? Because they didn't have refrigerators 5,000 years ago. That makes total sense. You don't want to leave food out in 120 degree India because it will go bad. So look at what makes sense and what correlates with today. A lot of the stuff in Ayurveda is totally aligned with what the latest research is saying. So now we know up to 95% of your serotonin, your happiness hormone is in your gut. So having a a happy gut is literally the key to mental happiness. And Ayurveda has been saying this for 5,000 years. And now finally, we're realizing how important this is.
0: Got it. Got it. All right. So what I want to do is I want to move to our play hard round a little bit. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are super driven and they just don't take the time to play. But play does not have to be champagne spraying in Saint-Tropez. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It could be something as simple as making the time to finally read the book that you've been trying to read. So the point is it's not work related. So that's kind of the lens for the next few questions, what's a typical Saturday morning look like for you?
1: Mm, I love going to the beach. That for me is my favorite place. I try to. I live in Santa Monica, so it's not too far away. So I try to go to the beach at least three times a week. And I, for me, Saturdays I try since I have a little bit more space. I try to do more of my creative stuff. So if I'm writing something or doing podcasts, or um, right now I'm writing. This deck is like Oracle cards and things that are more like creative that I can't exactly schedule into a two-hour gap because it takes more of that, that higher self brain. So I'll use my Saturdays for that.
0: If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why?
1: One month anywhere. For me, Bali. I love Bali so much. Every time I go there, it gives me such incredible insight. And I'd, even though I've been there, I'd always love to go back.
0: If you can go to only one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be?
1: I love Cafe Gratitude. I know that's so LA, but I love the whole (laughs) bowl from Cafe Gratitude. It was very, it makes me feel very
0: whole. What's the one thing that's rocking your world right now that has absolutely nothing to do with the kind of work you do?
1: Hmm. Well, I'm planning my wedding and I think it's going to be in Hawaii where Jurassic Park was filmed. So getting excited about that. And we're going to be going to Hawaii in two weeks.
0: Is that what you, are you getting married in two weeks?
1: No, we're just going to, um, to see the place. It'll be next summer. Yeah.
0: Okay. You're checking it out in two weeks. Got it. Okay. That's going to be, congratulations by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. How much time do you take off to recharge and refocus per week or per year?
1: Yeah, so I like to have little, like I call it like my coffee time. So that's like your rest time. I try to do it in chunks every day. Do something that helps ground me, whether again that's walking outside, going to the beach, just lying on my floor and stretching, and then I'll do more macro ones as well, which could be me going on a trip somewhere and um, allowing myself that separation. I'll I'll delete my Instagram. Like if I'm working on something or I just feel like it's it's taking up too much of my mental space, I'll delete my Instagram app. And that for me is such a vacation. So you need, everyone needs to go into the kapha, the rest, the nourishment, the reevaluation in order to think of your best ideas. And every time I'm on that walk or doing something unrelated to work, I think of things I would have never thought of if I was just on my laptop trying to find a solution to something. And it reminds me how important that is.
0: You know what's so interesting about that? I'm sure the people listening, they just got like a a shot of adrenaline down their arm when you said delete their Instagram. You know, we are so wired to these things these days, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I mean the great thing is you can delete it and then you can download it again. It's not going to You can
0: log back in. Yeah,
1: but but I think when you delete it and then when you try to go on and you realize the app's not there, you're not going to go back and re-download the whole thing. It just creates this a little bit of a obstacle for you and that that obstacle allows for the thoughts to kick in of like, okay, do I really need to be going on my Instagram? What is the purpose am I trying to escape from something right now? And most of the time, yes, we are trying to escape from something.
0: That's such a great tip. If you had all the time and money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be and why?
1: Mm, I mean, I love the oceans. So I would really love to learn more about marine biology and help save the oceans and dedicate myself to that.
0: Mm, That's kind of a twist on how you started. Yeah. What's the one thing you've always wanted to learn but haven't gotten around to yet?
1: So when I was a kid, I was fluent in Spanish. I had this like babysitter who'd always speak to me in Spanish. And and I can speak it pretty well, but I really want to immerse myself to get fluent enough to do podcast episodes in Spanish. But every time I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it, it's just such a long road ahead. And I'm like, oh, whatever. I'll just... If everyone speaks English these days. But it would be great to be able to do podcast episodes and speak just as clearly in English as I could in Spanish.
0: Me llamo Sahara. Si. Sí. Let's move to the end of your life, shall we? When you come to the end of your life and you're lying on your deathbed, what would you regret the most if you didn't do?
1: Not living up to my fullest potential.
0: Love that. When you find that you are bumping up against a ceiling in business and you know you need to step away and recharge, what's your favorite thing to do to renew yourself to come back sharper and fresher?
1: Be in nature. Nature for me is the ultimate muse and source of inspiration. And just to rebalance yourself with the earth's natural energy is the exact hit that I always need.
0: Love it. All right, we're going to do our last round now, which is our rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers?
1: my ability to follow through with my ideas.
0: What's one of the things you're afraid of right now?
1: Mm, just the state of the world. In
0: what keeps general. you up at night?
1: Things I need to do, to-do list.
0: What do people never ask you, but you wish they did?
1: Mm, yeah, I guess more about how we can really like help, help the world and humanity and, and activism.
0: What's the one thing you want to get better at?
1: organization in, in in business and just in life. It just makes things a lot more efficient.
0: What book have you reread the most?
1: I recently was rereading and I love the book, uh, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Ecker. I just love how he really is spiritual and brings in the money conversation in a great way.
0: Yeah. Have you listened to the audio version of that?
1: I have not. I was actually at one of his conferences a few weeks ago. It was called Train the Trainer. And yeah, he's such a genius.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's really good. I had one of his trainers on the podcast and uh, listening to the audio version of it is uh, a different way of consuming it. You may want to check it out. I think you dig it. Cool. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out but never will?
1: You know, I get so many samples of things like products, etc. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to use those. And I just hold on to them and I never use them. And yeah, I think just simplifying my life. And I would love to be one of those minimalists that has like three things in their house, but somehow I just can't do that. <laughs>
0: I know, me neither. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like or anything that you have a passion for or really anything else at all, what would it be?
1: Yeah. I, I love talking about love and relationships. I think if I came back in a new life, I would just be a matchmaker. I could talk about that all day. Oh,
0: that's really interesting. Last question. We're going to change it up a little bit. What one question do you want to ask me?
1: Oh, I'd love to know how do you bring spirituality and consciousness into your life as an as entrepreneur?
0: You know what? I'm not going to lie to you. It's not easy for me. And I have to force myself to tap into that side, like we talked about earlier with my dosha. And, you know, God's not done with me yet. And I would say that I am slowly learning how to tap into that side by setting up structure in my life that allows me to do things like meditate every morning. Just getting me to sit for a minute was very, very difficult. And as a result of doing it for the last, oh, probably year or so, I'm up to about 20 minutes a day, five days a week. And in doing that process, I am allowing myself to feel things at a deeper level. I was very, very in my head I don't feel that way anymore. I allow myself to feel things um, at a deeper level. And I think as a result of that, it translates to how I show up and interact in the world in a different way. And it's leading to doing different things. Like now, part of um, some of the funding, part of some of the profits that I make from uh, the work hard, play hard brand 10% of it is going to something that lights me up which is uh an organization called CardioStart and uh it's basically doctors that fly to other countries for free to do heart surgery for babies who would die without the surgery and each heart surgery costs $5000 but they literally have the ability to save a life or not save a life by getting these surgeries So that process of starting to meditate and feel my feelings and get deeper into my emotions has led to a a more, for lack of a better word, charitable contribution side of me that never showed up before. And that's currently how it's manifesting. So that's, that's my ramble. I'm not sure if I answered the question though.
1: I love that. And it just is so beautiful to see how just a moment, an extra minute in your day of stillness and how many lives that has eventually ended up saving. You're saving lives from being still. Can you imagine that?
0: What a good way to put it. I like that. On that, on that note, we will wrap up. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening?
1: Um, no, just if anyone is confused about, Ayurveda and their dosha. On my website, I have a quiz you can take. It's IamSaharaRose.com. You can take a quiz and find out what your dosha is and I will email you a free mini course and share that stuff with you. And just keep exploring everyone. If there's something that you're interested in as far off and weird and crazy as it seems, go for it. You may be the person who just starts a
0: revolution about it. Absolutely love it. Sahara, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.